I must say that when Reverend Lee gives a pastoral heads up, a pastoral warning with the proviso that uh, I will not include any profanity and there's an audible groan of disappointment <laughs> from the crowd, I have to reflect on the meaning of my ministry <laughs> with joy. But actually, what I want to start out with today is is not funny. Um, something that came out this past week that you may have seen, it got some notice in the press, not a ton, but it was a study, or, or rather a study of studies, what they call a meta-analysis of disciplining children, particularly hitting kids, and particularly spanking. Now, this may not be to any of you, but this is like 75 different studies and 160,000 kids involved in these studies. And by the way, these studies were not designed because that would be the most cruel study in the world, right? One group of kids gets spanked and the other does not. Such things don't exist. But it has been studied extensively. And the result is this. Hitting a child, spanking a child has absolutely no indication that it produces any improvement in behavior whatsoever. In fact, the only correlations they found were these, in the opposite direction. Spanking a child, those kids who were spanked, are more likely to respond with aggression, more likely to develop later in life signs of depression, signs of hurting in their mental health. The lead investigator, the lead researcher in this meta-analysis, she said these words. She said it might be a, a relatively mild form, but spanking is a form of violence. The violence changes the relationship, it changes the power dynamic, and it makes it clear to the children that you can hit somebody if you have power. So children learn you can hit to get what you want. So those kids, not surprisingly, when they're with their friends, they're using aggression to do what they want it doesn't work it's counterproductive some of you might know the comedian louis ck uh, who's actually i think his best bits are grounded in moral outrage you know the humor there is not what he's talking about it's about the outrage that he brings to the fact that these things still happen well he's got this really powerful thing which you can find online about the fact that it is just completely outrageous it's it's nuts it makes no sense that we say all the time, you're not supposed to hit anyone. And the biggest among us still fear that there can be permission, that we can go ahead and whack the littlest among us. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is outrageous. I've got to tell you that in just about two decades now of being a pastoral counselor, of being with people at some of the more or even most vulnerable times in their lives, I've seen it anecdotally over and over and over again, the scars that came from wounds that in some cases are decades old of kids hit, spanked, abused, and it shows up in all kinds of really detrimental ways. doesn't mean that kids who are abused can't be resilient. In fact, they are some of the most resilient adults that I know. It just means that it causes harm. So I say all this because in this same week, in which this meta-analysis, the fact that spanking does not work and produces harm, does not help. I also saw this on my Facebook feed. Not for the first time, 
My parents spanked me as a child. As a result, I now suffer from a psychological condition known as respect for others. By the way, the studies around uh, spanking and its lack of efficacy, the fact that it does not work, it's produced things like this. It's not the first time I've seen this. I've probably seen this five, ten, maybe fifteen times over the years. At one point, a friend of mine, someone who I really like, admire, and esteem, posted this. And I had, not too soon before he had posted it, seen the results of one of those studies about the fact that spanking doesn't work. And so I pushed back. And, well, we did one smart thing, at least, which is decide we were going to take our argument private. (laughs) We did not have it on his Facebook feed. And the truth is, I could tell there was some real energy there for him, but also I wanted to let him know that what he was offering out into the universe was harmful. It was wrong. I don't know if I changed his mind, but one of the things that I recognize is that he really dug in his heels. He really was invested in this idea that because he was hit as a child, it gave him the seeds of learning respect for others. Real insistence. I got to believe, but actually, as we as a society come to greater awareness of the effects of violence, that we're going to see more of this kind of stuff, more of this digging in their heels when we question some long-established practices, not just about raising kids, but all kinds of things in this culture, all kinds of things in this society. And it makes me think of one of my, let's say, top five favorite quotes for understanding and making sense of the human condition, and it is this. The great teacher, the great writer, James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Substitute hates, if you would, with fears or conditioning or simply ideas about the way life should be. Once we can move beyond some of that, if we're willing to, what we might find underneath all that, the residual... hurts what's left after that clinging is released is that we may have to deal with vulnerability we may have to deal with uncertainty we may have to question some of the long established practices and things that have been handed to us even if we didn't choose them in the first place and we may have to ask ourselves the question If I release this, maybe I will have to face the fact that what happened to me was not fair and that it hurts. By the way, this quote from James Baldwin, uh, like I said, it is one of my top five in terms of understanding the human condition. And I think if we want to understand a lot of what's going on in this country right now, we should pay attention to what James Baldwin wrote. So the movie for today, it's an animated movie, and it is very, very far from a kid's movie. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I'm going to try not to give too much of it away, but I'm going to have to give a little bit of it, so I apologize. It's still worth seeing. This movie is at base all about those who 
are really resistant to vulnerability. We don't want to face our own pain. We don't want to face our own uncertainty. This movie takes place in medieval Japan in a world of myths and monsters and magic. And it involves Kubo, the main character. Young boy, probably 10 or 11 years of age, trained in fighting and in martial arts. And also having lost his father. And pretty soon into the movie, we find out that he loses his mother as well, too. So it's a story of an orphan. Kubo comes to realize, and again, if I would explain this all of you to all of you, I'm not sure I would fully explain it still, and it would take all the rest of the message. So just grant me this. His grandfather is the Moon King. <laughs> just accept that. His grandfather is the Moon King, a king of the moon, who... When Kubo was very young, caused Kubo to lose one of his eyes. We come to understand that the Moon King, Kubo's grandfather, is absolutely afraid and in fact hates, back to that Baldwin quote, hates the vulnerability of what it is to be human. Hates the intimacies and the ties and the ways in which we can be wounded by each other. Wants to be above it all. That's why he says to Kubo essentially later on, I want you to be able to join me on the moon <laughs> where things are pure and pristine and cold and cool and no one ever hurts and you're just above it all. And by the way, to do that, I need to take your other eye. Notice, notice that thing. I'm doing this for your own good. <laughs> notice back to that study. I'm doing this for your own good, he would say to Kubo. I'm going to bring you to a realm in which things are perfect and unchanging and invulnerable, and you never have to feel the pain of being alive. So uh, Kubo is also a story that, you know, if you pay attention to it, and it's one of the things throughout the movie is like, don't blink or you miss the story. I think one of the things they're telling you right off the bat is that uh, this story wouldn't exist without Harry Potter. <laughs> the parallels between this story and Harry Potter are woven all throughout. Uh, so I've seen a bunch of the movies, but I just started uh, reading the books, and I just finished the first one. Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone, depending upon the UK or the American version and all that. And I got to tell you, I absolutely loved it. And I'm not going to have a lot of time for pleasure reading this year coming up or the next few years, but I'm going to set out for myself that I'm going to read the Harry Potter series. I'm very proud of myself. I really am. I think it's a smart thing. Um, there's even in this movie, there's, there's a version of what they call in, in the first Harry Potter uh, book, the, the Mirror of Erised, Erised, if I'm pronouncing that right. Nor my Harry Potter ease much yet. Um, but it, that's just desire, by the way, flipped. The problem with the mirror, as Dumbledore explains, is that it shows us exactly what our deepest desire is, as we wish life would be. And the problem is, is that people can lose themselves in that vision and stop paying attention to the life they actually have. So there's a version of that in this movie. It's about a young boy, preteen, who has magical powers, right? We're getting this parallel here. Even to make it more explicit, Kubo has lost an eye to his adversary. Harry has a scar because of Voldemort. And the villains are essentially the same in many ways. Voldemort and the Moon King hate our human vulnerability, despise it as weakness, 
want to search for some deathless state in which they don't have to feel anything anymore. Now, the slight change here is that the Moon King, which Voldemort really doesn't do from what I understand from the movies, although maybe the books are different, I'll come to understand that in time. (laughs) Don't tell me. (laughs) You figure it out for myself. This is what happens when you are a decade late to to the (laughs) defining myth of your generation. This is the one change, though, is that the Moon King, Kubo's grandfather, tries to express it as this warped form of love. If you let me take your other eye, you'll be able to join me in this state in which you don't have to feel any pain anymore. I'm doing this, quote unquote, for your own good. Join me in this changeless state in which you don't have to feel all the bad stuff of what it is to be human any longer. The kind of psychological truth that this movie points to in a really, really extreme way is something that I think all of us know, something that I know, which is that our lives change all the time. And that change, especially when it's related to the people that we love, it can hurt. And so sometimes in our lives, what we call love can actually be a form of attachment. Don't change, because if you change, I will feel insecure or uncertain about what my life is or what my life means. Don't change. Please stay the same, because if you change, then I won't know who I am. By the way, this comes back to that Jimmy Baldwin quote, which is, you know, very often they talk about in Buddhism, you know, attachment brings suffering. It's it's actually a really poor translation. It's what James Baldwin said. Clinging brings suffering. Clinging to our idea of who we are or who another person is and expecting that we can exist in this changeless state in which we've got it all locked down. And that if we do that, we'll be happy. But that the truth is, is life is, of course, we all know that if we're honest with ourselves sitting here today, so much bigger than our ability to control. And so love that is clinging is really not love. It's a form of wanting to keep ourselves safe, just like the moon king wants to keep himself safe. There are much greater definitions of love. One of mine is these from a guy named Eric Fromm. So you might remember it. Eric Fromm, he was real big when I was in school, like two, three decades ago, wrote a book called Escape from Freedom. And that book was a product of a whole generation of teachers and thinkers and scholars trying to make sense of what the hell happened in Nazi Germany. A lot of these thinkers and scholars and teachers, Jewish, a lot of them having German roots and wanting to understand this place that took us in for years that we lived, that was the center of culture became the place of such great and awful depravity. And Eric Fromm had a theory that points to, I think, what's happened. We don't want to face our uncertainty. We don't want to face our vulnerability. He called it the escape from freedom. He said the opposite of the escape from freedom is love. And this is his definition. Love is the active concern for the life and growth of what and who I love. Love is the active concern for the life and growth of what and who I love. It's very different (laughs) 
and clinging to an idea of who we or other people should be. It's also, by the way, really different than love as the sentimentality or the feeling or the expecting that the feeling will never change (laughs) that is peddled to us in this culture. Thought a lot about this openness to change and also the fact that it's the same openness to hurt this past week as the first day of school photos start to show up in my Facebook feed. And also because uh, I, I got one of these for the first time in about two decades. <laughs> this Wednesday, my MSW program begins, part-time student that I'll be integrating here with my ministry at Wellsprings. I, I really like that because, well, one, it's kind of cool to be back in school. But two, that's the rare idea that, ID that doesn't make me look like a mole person, like I haven't seen the sun in the last couple of decades as well, too. So, and by the way, there probably will be, for those of you who are my Facebook friends, probably will be a first day of school photo of me on Wednesday. (laughs) I'm just a little bit excited, if you can't tell. (laughs) But, you know, it, it begs that question, you know, do we go back to school to jump through hoops? Do we go back to school to get the right degree so that we can do something else? And sometimes, yeah, it's about that. But, but even more... And I think this is the the pride, the sense of love, the sense of also letting go. Like there's a series on Sunday mornings on NPR right now. I've been listening to them and driving to Wellsprings recently. It's called The Next Chapter. And it's all about young kids leaving home at those key moments for school, for new work. And you can hear them and you can hear the voices of their parents. And it's like, wow, that is such a double-edged sword. (laughs) So much hope, so much love, and also so much oh, gut-churning sense. Are they going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Who am I going to be? Who are they going to be as we let go into this new form of life? And of course, that's what all forms of love, true love, really are about. And I think that's what all true learning really is about. It is about that development of our capacity to recognize that, yes, we have the resilience, the strength, and the capacity to grow beyond what we already know. This is real human development. This is why one of my other favorite definitions of love is from a biologist, a biologist who deals in the fact that life is always evolving. It's a guy named Humberto Macharan who says, love is the only emotion that expands intelligence. Love is the only emotion that expands our intelligence. I heard a story yesterday, just yesterday. I wasn't, you know, I, I kind of pieced these messages together. I'm going to tell you a little bit right now about how the sausage is made, which I don't like to do very often. Sometimes there is a big gaping hole as the week comes to a close of what's the story? What's going to bring this hopefully to home and to heart? And about, you know, yesterday around noontime, I didn't have one. <laughs> I could spend most of the afternoon looking, and at some point I would have gotten up in here one way or the other, successfully or unsuccessfully. But the universe is sometimes a really gracious place. And so I was presented someone with uh, this story. Yesterday I was doing uh, voter registration. Um, this is an important election. It's one of the reasons that we're doing voter registration here at Wellsprings. I have to tell you, uh, I would be very relieved if tomorrow they announced that the election would be on Tuesday and we could finally move past all this. But that's not the case. And so I'm involved in doing voter registration over the next several weekends. And I got to tell you, it is an interesting, challenging thing to approach someone you do not know and ask them a question like, is your voter ID up to date or would you like to register to vote? And not every one of these volunteers was all that good at it. Some people kind of 
from the best of intentions, my fellow volunteers, got in other people's space too quickly. And you could see the other people kind of take a step back, put their head down and say no and move on, not even hearing the question. And some other people were so timid. It's like they hid behind their, their clipboard and said, would you like to register to vote? Because it can be a frightening thing. And it's not that hard for me. I talk to new people all the time as part of my job. And I recognize that one of the other people I was serving with was really, really good at it. Gave the right amount of space, didn't say too many words, was really comfortable in his own skin. And as a result, he had a lot of people, even if they'd already registered before or got the response once, I've never voted and I never will ever again for the rest of my life. I never will vote. Uh, Even if you get the response, they got a direct piece of feedback. And so I started talking with this guy, asked him what he did for a living, asked him where he's from. We kind of exchanged some information with each other. And I said, you know, you, you feel to me someone who's really comfortable and really curious about other people. That, you know, you're not just trying to sell them something. You're actually relating to them. And he told me a little bit more about how he came to that place in his life. And they said this, the truth is, is that... And he paused. I had a life-changing experience about a decade and a half ago that relates to my curiosity about other people. And so he told the story. He said, I was up on a beautiful day like today, up on the top of the Empire State Building with other members of my family. And it was a gorgeous day, and you could see for miles. And, you know, if you've ever been up there on the top of a very, very tall building, it is an awe-inspiring, in many ways, experience. And he said everyone around us just looked absolutely happy and enchanted. He said, but I noticed this one guy who came up and joined us on the observation deck, the sky deck there. And I noticed him at first because he just looked odd. He was wearing a pirate costume, a pirate outfit tricorner hat and a puffy ruffled shirt and kind of knee-high stockings. And what he also noticed about this guy is that he looked, unlike everyone else, incredibly glum, sad. And he thought, well, okay, you know, the story told himself is that Empire State Building is near the theater district. Maybe his play just closed and he's not feeling so good about himself. Approach him. He didn't say anything to this guy, however. They left the Empire State Building, got back in their car, were driving back to New Jersey, back home here to Pennsylvania. And they heard a report on the radio that a man dressed in a pirate outfit had thrown himself to his death off of the Empire State Building. You can look this story up if if you want to. It happened. And the man who was telling me this story, he grew very quiet for a moment. And he said, I'm not under any illusion that if I had talked to him that one day, that I would have changed everything for him. I don't have that kind of power necessarily. But I know there was something in him that looked like it was in pain And I'm sorry that I did not take that instinct and approach him and at least offer him a kind word. This makes a difference, following up on this instinct, this curiosity, this desire to connect, 
to honor this deep, compassionate curiosity inside of all of us, to actually want to know what is actually going on, even if it interrupts a beautiful day when everyone else seems happy and the world seems like in a gorgeous place when we're up on top of the Empire State Building. The truth is at any moment we can be around all kinds of other people whose lives may absolutely be in the toilet, who may be suffering greatly, and we never know when our present moment intention to be curious and compassionate might make a difference. Hopefully we don't take that stuff with us to our grave. Hopefully we express those feelings to reach out. It does make a difference. I heard a story recently from a woman named Evelyn at a rehab in lower Manhattan. I wasn't there for this. I read about her story. She talked about what it was that brought her back from the brink of literal death. And soul death as well, too. She wrote, I finally started feeling like a human being again. And that is because I was being loved and treated like a person should be treated. I was special in other people's eyes. I count as someone special and not just as something unacceptable in society. There were people around her who clearly knew That love is the emotion that expands our intelligence. That expands our capacity to continue to grow and to come to know something new about this life when we might feel that we are exhausted. At Wellsprings, in our core beliefs, we put it this way, freedom finds its fulfillment in our connections with each other. Love expands our wisdom. Because the truth of it is obviously right, that change in this life is a given. If we're lucky, we'll get a chance to grow old, if we're fortunate. But growth is a choice. Learning is a choice, hopefully a loving one. And to bring this full circle back around to this movie, the movie points in this direction, and that's what the two strings are about. They are keepsakes of his parents' hair even after they have left this life, that allows him to restring his little guitar-like instrument that he plays, and yes, just trust me, it helps him to defeat the Moon King. This is the paradox, right? It's the paradox we see over and over again in this life, that the only things we get to stay in relationship to are the things that we are willing to let go of. His parents have died, but they are still with him. There is change in this life, but there is also growth. This is the most happy, most beautiful inverse of James Baldwin's sad understanding of humanity that is at many times correct. If we learn to let go just a little bit, not cling quite so much, then we can learn what it is to truly love. Then we can grow. Then we can flourish into the full flower of our humanity. May you love and may you grow today. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Larger love, great compassion divine presence right here in the midst of our lives, in the midst of each breath. 
in the ground underneath our feet, in the air all around us, and especially, especially let us never forget in every form of life there is. May we recognize that today we are not done. We are not finished. We are not a product to be completed. We are a life force to be unfolding. May we recognize the wonder of our capacity for growth and also the pain that sometimes spurs that growth. From that place of wonder, may we follow the call. We are not a finished product. We are a beautiful blessing. Amen.